Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Our guest today is Julia Hochstadt, a therapist with over 20 years of expertise in working with victims of crime, trauma, and interpersonal violence, including child abuse, rape, and sexual assault and domestic violence. Before working in private practice, Julia led New York Presbyterian's Victim Intervention Program, providing acute emergency room support, counseling, and case management services to crime and trauma victims and their families. She also worked at the Sexual Assault and Violence Intervention Program at Mount Sinai Hospital in a similar capacity. Trained as a social worker, Julia also holds advanced training certifications in psychodynamic psychotherapy and is certified as an expert witness in domestic violence for the Manhattan and the Bronx District Attorney's offices. Julia can be reached at julia.hoxtat at gmail.com or via her website. Julia is here with us today to speak about her clinical work serving survivors of trauma and interpersonal violence, the specific needs and challenges of working with this population, and suggestions for practice or policy reform that may help practitioners better help survivors. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. So let's get started. I would love to know how you got started in counseling and therapy. What made you decide to go to social work school and become a therapist? Sure. So I consider myself really lucky because I love what I do, but also because I've always been the kind of person who knew what I wanted to do from a pretty early age. I just knew I wanted to, you know, it sounds cliche, but I wanted to help people. (laughs) I studied psychology as an undergrad and was always sort of psychologically minded, spoke to some people in terms of like becoming a psychologist, a school psychologist, pursuing a PsyD, a degree in social work, and ultimately just decided that I liked the options that being a social worker would afford me. So that's how I decided social work. (laughs) Was was there any particular experience in your life growing up or person with a challenge that you had to confront that inspired you to look into this as a field? My immediate reaction is not specifically, but who among us doesn't have an interesting background or history, right? But my parents were divorced when I was quite young and my parents both remarried and I was adopted by my stepfather who basically raised me since the age of about three or four. He adopted me when I was 18 and it was more for emotional reasons more than anything else. But, you know, so I have step siblings and half siblings and, you know, a variety of different kinds of experiences along the way. But... I don't feel as though any of my particular experiences or my history was what sort of put me on this path of wanting to help other people specifically. But then again, that's come up in my own therapy at times, (laughs) right? But yeah, so I just always knew that I wanted to help people. I think when I was younger, I didn't know exactly what that meant or how I wanted to help. And so one of the things, again, that I liked about being a social worker that I found appealing at the time was that I could be in private practice, I could work in a hospital, I could work in a school, I could work with kids, I could work with adults. And so it still gave a lot of variety. It seems like from your personal history, you've had a lot of experience navigating issues of identity and belonging. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, what are some of the main reasons that your clients come to see you? So let me back up and also acknowledge that When I was, just before I went away to college, I turned to my family and I said, you know, I don't want to work in retail this summer. I want to do something that has more meaning. I think I want to work with women. I think I want to work with children. What could I do? And my family pointed me to a local domestic violence service agency in our town, which blew me away because not only had I never come in contact with, or had I known that I had come in contact with domestic violence, I certainly didn't know that we had a local resource in our town because there was no sign, there's no neon sign blinking services here. 
So I did a student internship one summer and just felt like I was bitten by the bug of anti-violence work from that point on. So that was almost 20 years ago. How old were you then? Probably about 17. And which town was this in? I grew up in Rockland County. Oh, okay. Um, so the Rock, it, it formerly known as the Rockland Family Shelter. I think their name is now the Center for Hope and Safety or Center for Safety and Change. One is in Rockland, one is in Bergen. Okay. Because since you mentioned Rockland, yeah. as an aside, we had an interview with Phyllis B. Frank of VCS, which is an agency located in Rockland County. Oh, I do know. Yes. Okay. And she's, uh-huh. she was on our show to talk about batter intervention program. She started the first program for New York State. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing because at 17, um, to be able to have that level of awareness and interest, mm-hmm. even outside of yourself. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think that that's, to a large credit on the part of my family who sort of pushed me in that, not pushed me in that direction, but said, hey, what about, what about this? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just, I really fell in love with the work and most importantly, working with survivors. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so from that point on, anytime there was something to read about, study about, write about, present about throughout my college career, my post-grad career, it was always around victimization and, and working with survivors. Back to the question about how your patients come to you. What right. are they seeking help on? Yeah. In terms of word of mouth referrals, I think people tend to seek me out for my areas of expertise. So specifically childhood sexual abuse, rape, sexual assault, and intimate partner violence or domestic violence. So I work with a lot of people who have that either currently going on for them or historically but certainly not everybody that I work with. I also work with people who are interested, motivated to examine anxiety, depression, career transitions, relationship stuff. I think it's largely word of mouth that people find me. Sometimes people might find me through like a Google search. If they Google, you know, sexual assault and Bergen County, they may find me that way. And, you know, several months ago, I was working at a large hospital in the city and I would encounter people because they were coming in through the emergency room or they were patients elsewhere in the hospital or they were simply reaching out to our hotline number. So I tend to meet people in lots of different ways. And are they coming to you mainly at some point in their healing and recovery process, or are they coming to you in crisis mainly? I mean, at a hospital setting, I'm guessing they're coming to you in crisis. In the hospital, it was a real mix of both. So our program provided when I was there and still does provide acute services. So meaning through the emergency room, if somebody needs something, medical attention or any kind of support for something that just happened to them, But also our hotline is available to people who have no affiliation with the hospital whatsoever, Mm -hmm. who may want to talk about something that happened to them 20 years ago. So that was my, my world in the hospital. But in private practice, the same is true. People are welcome to reach out to me acutely if something just happened. But of course, I'm limited in terms of what I'm able to offer somebody in my in my private office setting, as opposed to, you know, sitting several floors up from an emergency room. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's changed a bit, though. I do get calls from people and I think people know that I am a resource when it comes to these kinds of things. So somebody may reach out to me in the midst of a crisis simply for guidance or for information on, you know, what what can I do next? What should I know about this process? That kind of thing. And how did you develop your expertise in domestic violence and intimate partner violence and trauma? In lots of different ways. So as I said, I got my start at the Rockland Family Shelter simply doing an internship. So my job at the time was to help the outreach and training coordinator, follow her around, listen to her presentations and help her move things around. And when there was downtime with that, my job was to read and to soak up anything that I could from the office. I went back several years thereafter to do different kinds of things in that space. Then I went on to the D.C. Rape Crisis Center. I lived in D.C. for a summer. It was there that I was trained as a volunteer advocate for both sexual assault and domestic violence survivors in the hospital. I've worked, interned, volunteered at several different nonprofits in the city. Sanctuary for Families is one. Joyful Heart Foundation is another. New York City Alliance Against Sexual Assault. These are in addition to 
my full-time gigs, one was at Mount Sinai's Sexual Assault and Violence Intervention Program for several years, where I coordinated their Sexual Assault Forensic Examiner Program and was a clinician. And then most recently, I worked as the director of the Victim Intervention Program at New York Presbyterian Cornell. And all along the way, mixed in with all of those things, I've taken a ton of continuing education courses. I am a faculty member of some additional courses. I testify as an expert witness. I was on several different task forces and program initiatives. And it's just always been a subject that I feel really fascinated by. And it's so important to me that, you know, it doesn't generally feel like work because I like what I do so much. Would you say there's a set of resources, books, experts in the field that people who want to label themselves experts should be aware of? Yes. And, and, and what, <laughs> catching what, uh, me off yeah. a little bit in terms of like recommended titles. Yeah. I mean, I think especially in New York City, we have such a wealth of knowledge and information historically, but also very currently. There's a, there's a ton of, of information out there for people who are interested in doing this work. For people who do this work in terms of the support of colleagues and other programs, there's a lot of multidisciplinary collaboration that takes place. But also in terms of survivors who are in need of services, we're really fortunate in New York City as compared to some other places, even in the state of New York, but in some more rural areas, some areas upstate, not even that far out of the city. By comparison, we really have a lot of resources available to folks here. I'd have to get back to you in terms of a reading list, which okay, I'm happy no to do. Yes, but please. there are a lot of there are a lot of really important reads that I think clinicians could keep on hand in their personal library. In my work, I get asked this actually quite a bit. You know, what what could I be reading? Um, what could I be le- studying on my own? And I'm always cautious to make those kinds of recommendations too quickly because I think that for some people, reading on their own might actually do more harm than good. It might leave people feeling triggered or, you know, after a long day of work or first thing in the morning before they go to work or before they head out into their lives without understanding how people might want to incorporate some sort of learning into their lives. I'm always cautious about, you know, there are different kinds of books like The Body Keeps the Score Mm -hmm. or The Courage to Heal. These are some names off the top of my head. But, you know, how somebody's going to take that information and run with it I always like to have a conversation with people first. Part of the reason I ask is because I know that across the city, there's so many different agencies that do offer training Mm -hmm. and the scope of the training varies widely. Mm -hmm. So some of the trainings could be three hours, some could be three days, Mm -hmm. even amongst agencies Mm -hmm. whose staff are supposed to be trained in domestic violence Mm -hmm. and working with survivors and their families there's a wide range. Yeah. And so when you have that wide range, you know, how effective can it be is is my question to myself and having to call it to let's say a 3-hour training. Right. You know, there must be some set of essentials or perhaps not, maybe it's insufficient. Maybe there's is there a minimum amount that you think someone needs to have access to to have a grasp of what the issues are? In other words to to say that they have expertise in something? Yes. Well, so, and I'm forgetting the number offhand, um, but a a good friend and colleague of mine references the number of hours you have to have been immersed in something in order to call yourself an expert. And I'm forgetting that number offhand. If you're talking about Malcolm Gladwell, no, no, you're not talking about Malcolm Gladwell because he cited 10,000 hours. It might be. Okay. Because 10,000 hours. (laughs) Many many hours. (laughs) Yeah. But I hear what you're saying. And in terms of You know, I think that like anything else, fit is so important. So if you are a student, if you are a survivor, if you are a clinician, wherever you may fall along these lines, if you feel like you're in a space where you're getting something out of it, something is resonating with you, you feel safe in the room, you feel like, you know, you're getting what you paid for of sorts or not, 
I think that that's really important information to pay attention to. So you may be sitting with somebody who has a shingle outside their door that says expert so-and-so and all these letters after their names, and your friend may have raved about working with them. But if when you're sitting in their office, you think that they don't, they don't know anything about what they're talking about, and they certainly don't know anything that feels relevant to you, then it doesn't really matter that your friend had such a wonderful experience with them. And I think, you know, acknowledging that we all have this subjectivity, not taking away from your question about expertise, but I think in terms of acknowledging how we're feeling about something, which is not always easy for people to do. This comes up a lot in my work with survivors or with survivors rather, that it can be hard to acknowledge or honor what our experience is. So I guess a a short or long way of answering your question is also that people need to keep in mind that what works for one person is not necessarily going to work for all people. Again, there's so many different training opportunities for so many different things in the city. It can be really hard to suss out what is what is worthwhile and what is not. What about your own certifications? You are an expert witness to mm-hmm. the DA's offices in the Bronx and Manhattan? Yes. And those were certifications that you had to receive. How did that come about? Well, so I was invited by the district attorney's offices to come in and meet with them. And their opinion was I had expertise enough to certainly sit in front of a judge and ask that the judge qualify me as an expert. So that was what the process was like. And it's fairly intense. They, each and every time, asked me to run through my educational background, my work history, my work experience, questions about how many survivors I've worked with in different capacities. And I'm very grateful to them for the opportunity to testify, which I think is such a wonderful, very different part of my clinical work, but such a wonderful way to work with survivors and to work in the field of antiviolence. So yes, both the Manhattan and the Bronx District Attorney's offices consider me to be an expert. (laughs) In your experience working with survivors, what have been some of the most common challenges that you've had in treating them? Well, I think that that question could be answered a couple of different ways, right? So individually, people have lots of different kinds of challenges. And some I would consider to be sort of thematic, generally speaking, and then other times it's struggles that an individual is having. Other times it might be, it might feel more systemic, right? So There are lots of people who have mixed feelings, for example, about reporting a crime that they've experienced to anyone, but in particular to law enforcement or even to a hospital setting because they've had bad experiences in the past or because they're not interested in moving forward with a criminal justice proceeding. They may, they may simply, not so simply, but they may simply need help in a crisis moment. And so I think it's always, It can be mixed, right, when working with people who are also engaged or considering to engage with large systems regarding a victimization. And no matter what an individual decides is the right decision for them. And my job, partly, is to support whatever decisions they come to. But a lot of people will talk about having wonderful experiences with large systems. And then other times people report having not so wonderful experiences with large systems. And that that's sort of always been challenging in this work in New York City, I'd say. Getting back to your point about recognizing that every survivor's decision is right for that person. Mm-hmm. How do you define right? Because if that decision ends up, let's say, leading to greater harm, physical danger, or even death mm-hmm. for that person, mm-hmm. how is that right? I believe very strongly that people make decisions with the information that we have in front of us at the time. And in you know hindsight is always 2020 and i think it's really important that people make their own decisions and that we that i as as an individual psychotherapist that i acknowledge my client's right to making autonomous decisions you know i also am aware given the dynamics in abusive relationships um specifically that people don't always have a lot of choice when it comes to anything and I want their experience with me to be qualitatively different than that. And I think it's so important that, you know, decisions large or small, that people make them for themselves. I think part of my role as a therapist, as a trauma-informed therapist, 
is to help people come to their own most right decision for themselves, which includes at times going back to places that may be unsafe. And that comes up a lot of, you know, it's very common. It comes up a lot when I'm working with people who are in or have been in abusive relationships. And it can certainly be a challenging aspect of the work. But again, I think, you know, being with somebody and helping somebody come to the most right decision for themselves is what's most important. And the truth of the matter is, is that people know what is going to be safest for them, just like people know what's most right for them. People know what is most safest for them. And for many survivors of domestic violence or people living in abusive relationships, leaving a relationship can be one, if not the most dangerous times in that abusive relationship. You know, abusive behavior, domestic violence is all about power and control. And the ultimate threat to power and control is leaving. And so a lot of times people will say, well, why are you, why are you going back? Why are you going back? This person's not treating you well. You were in the hospital last week. What, what's wrong with you? But actually, you know, I think the statistic is somewhere around 70% of domestic violence related homicides happen once a survivor has left the relationship. So I think a lot of really well-intentioned people are sometimes encouraging a survivor, maybe judging a survivor for making decisions that actually, statistically speaking, may be helping them prolong their life, but it goes against what we think might be safest for them. And again, keeping those judgments in place and reminding ourselves that survivors know what the right decisions are for themselves, including what's going to keep them safest not necessarily a hundred thousand million percent safe, period the end, but safest. I trust that that the people that I work with know the answers to those decisions themselves. Do you consider it to be a therapist's role to also help a survivor recognize the kind of relationship and put words and articulate the kind of relationship that that person is in and basically name it as being abuse, power control? Sure. At times, I think that that's very important. And I, a couple of weeks ago, was working with this person, providing a lot of psychoeducation around abusive relationships and dynamics and things that this person knew were going on, but she didn't necessarily have words to call these things, you know, how to describe these patterns, these dynamics. And so we, we were talking quite a bit about just that putting words to these things, giving giving some context. And she really felt so comforted by, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm so, you know, as she said, I'm so grateful that there's that there are words to call these things because otherwise it just felt like a garbled, you know, jumbled mess in my heart or in my head. But I think that part of the skill in trauma-informed treatment is knowing when that might be or or assuming, right? And again, everything in my work with my patients is an invitation. I think it's really important not to impose language on somebody who might not be ready for that. So it's something that I might offer to somebody or ask somebody what they think when I say something. And I'll always be mindful of saying something like, you know, this is a word that I'm going to use. It's not a word that you have to use. Because for example, if somebody has experienced a rape or what sounds to me like a rape, but they're not using the word rape, it might be counterproductive if I use that word before they were ready to hear it. And again, I'm, I'm not in the business of forcing people to do anything or say anything or be anything that they are not themselves choosing. So I do think that, you know, violence thrives in silence. And I think that a lot of times people are seeking treatment out with me to process what may feel like unspeakaboutable experiences. And I, I really believe that giving some airtime to these kinds of experiences can be so beneficial and therapeutic. I've seen this happen so many times in my practice. But I, I really believe that really any kind of therapy, but especially uh, trauma-focused therapy, people need to choose when it's right for them, if it's right for them ever, to talk about these kinds of things because it can be so painful, because it can drudge up so much stuff. And for some people, the treatment may move very quickly. And for other people, it may move very slowly. But certainly, yes, I do think that in language that resonates with the person in front of me at a pace of their own choosing, putting words to experience can really help people develop their narrative around a trauma. What are the risks 
of naming something too soon to the person's recovery or engagement? I think people could be put off. Um, you know, for example, if somebody comes in and they're not happy or satisfied in their relationship, and if the therapist is too quick to label that as abusive or to talk in terms of, I'm using air quotes here for people, but, you know, the, the perpetrator as opposed to your partner or your spouse, your wife, your husband, somebody may be like, hold on a second. Like, yes, I was just describing some somebody who, who you know, put their hands around my neck, but that's not a perpetrator. My, my husband's not a perpetrator. How dare you use that kind of language? And, you know, they may never come back. So they would shut down, basically. Yeah, they might shut down. They might become offended. They might, they just might not be ready for it. And so I think that there's a certain way of offering those kinds of things to patients with a, a certain finesse or skill that really acknowledges the point you may be trying to make with, and you may not be here yet. And, you know, what do you, what do you think about these words as I'm saying them? You know, I'll use that kind of language with, with my clients all the time. What about your work with law enforcement and the people who are engaged professionally with supporting survivors and holding abusers and perpetrators accountable? Do you feel like the training that they're receiving is sufficient? Is there and is that something that's been an impediment to their ability to actually do the work that they're supposed to do? Well, so <laughs> just a program note, I'm not in law enforcement. I think people know that right now. But, you know, so I can only speak to what my experience is of, you know, directly observing their work, how that goes, but also in terms of survivors that I've worked with hearing their account of interactions with law enforcement. You know, I think I know that local law enforcement has really been doing quite a bit over the last several years in terms of providing trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive training and education to um, to uniformed officers to some extent, but certainly to uh, the detectives who are interviewing survivors. And I think that having not experienced that training myself, I, I have a limited perspective on what it entails, but the training certainly seems comprehensive as far as I'm concerned. What people walk away from it, however, I think that that varies by the individual, right? So I've certainly worked with some detectives who have raised their hands and chosen to work with survivors. And, you know, my perspective as a therapist, as a multidisciplinary teammate of that person might be, yes, you are, you are right for this work. You're doing an excellent job. Seven out of 10 survivors that I've worked with may give you two thumbs up, which I think seven out of 10 is a pretty decent number. <laughs> and then there are other people who, again, have seemingly raised their hands and said, I'd like to do this work. And I want to say, why? It doesn't seem like you like this work. It doesn't seem like you are invested in sitting with a survivor or that you recognize that it might take them a bit more time to be interviewed than another witness or another victim of a different kind of crime. So it really depends. I mean, I will say, I think that in terms of the collaboration between the advocate side of things and the law enforcement side of things, at least in my experience in the city, has swung like a pendulum back and forth over the years. Sometimes feels like we're moving in the same direction. Other times it can be difficult to get us all seated around the same table. But what I think is most important to highlight is that there's this constant pursuit of, but let's come back. Let's have it swing in the other direction, the other direction, the other direction. And that I've not experienced a time in my career in the city where everybody's gone to their separate corners and said, well, that's it. We're done here. We're never going to do this again. Because I think that between the advocacy community and the law enforcement community, we all recognize that it benefits everyone. When we don't necessarily have to all agree, but I think it, staying in touch with one another, being in good communication with one another does help to bring us back to the table time and time again. Well, the reason I asked that question is because systemically, I think it's pretty well acknowledged that survivors who encounter law enforcement have experienced victim blaming and gender bias and experiences that discourage them from trusting law enforcement and trusting that law enforcement will take their account seriously and or pursue it to the extent that it will actually lead to a conviction. The conviction rates are notoriously low for both rape and sexual assault and domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So just 
looking at it from a systemic perspective, have you seen any changes where people who are working in these positions are taking a position of believing the survivor and giving the survivor the benefit of the doubt versus trying to make the survivor live up to a standard of credibility that maybe they shouldn't have? I've experienced everything that you just mentioned. And I do believe that we may have moved in a very small way in the direction of erring on the side of believing survivors. I don't know that that speaks to everyone in law enforcement across the board. I certainly don't think it does. But what I will say, what I do think from my perspective, one of the major benefits that has come out of that small incremental step is that I always have a direct line of communication with somebody in authority in law enforcement. I would say that's a relatively new update in the last let's say five or so years. Whereas before that, I might hear from a survivor that they had a lousy experience with law enforcement and I didn't know who to call. Or I would call the local precinct and I wouldn't get transferred directly to one person. I would get the runaround. I wouldn't get somebody on the phone. And now, and in my former position and for the last several years, I not only have the desk number of several people who I could call, but I have their cell phone numbers too. And not only do they answer the phone, but even more importantly, if I leave them a message, they call me back. Now, it's not always necessarily the outcome that I have advocated for or that my survivor is interested in, but having that communication has definitely been, like I said, over the last several years, a change. And I think an important change and vice versa, right? They have my number too. If something goes well, doesn't go well with one of my advocates or at the hospital that I was working at, I want them to be able to reach out to me about that also. Now, that being said, Some survivors will have a pretty good experience with reporting a crime to law enforcement, and I would leave it up to the individual to define what pretty good means for them. And then there are other people who are still having lousy experiences with reporting to law enforcement. And again, this is all assuming if people want to report to law enforcement, and it's okay if people don't want to do that. What I want listeners to keep in mind is that regardless of what you do or do not want to do, And what your experience has yet to be or what it's already been, I think it's important to know that there is a ton of support available to you in New York City and in lots of surrounding communities where this is not a decision that you have to make on your own, that there are a lot of people in hospital-based programs and community-based programs who can help with these kinds of decisions and who can advocate for lots of different things. And so you know, for example, the phone calls that I would pick up and and reach out to so-and-so and say, this interaction really went lousy in the hospital. What are you going to do to follow up about it? Or this went really, really well. Your detective did an excellent job. And I want to pass along that kind of feedback too, that somebody in my position is able to do that kind of advocacy when a survivor reaches out and allows us to do that. So I think it's important for people to know that, you know, regardless of your decision, And regardless of the outcome, really, that it's not an experience that you have to go through on your own, that there are lots of trained people who are available to provide support because we need different kind of support when the the experience goes well than we do when it doesn't go well. Is your role as an advisor to law enforcement someone who they reach out to when they have questions around validating the experiences of survivors to basically assess that there's domestic violence that's occurred? Do you have to have an existing relationship with a survivor to be able to be engaged with law enforcement? No, I would say in my experience, as far as law enforcement is concerned, they have asked me to weigh in when I know somebody for five minutes or when I know somebody for five years. I don't necessarily think that either phone call is appropriate, right? I don't see it as part of my job to verify what's really going on here, right? If that's an acute sexual assault survivor that I've known in the emergency room for a couple of hours and the uniformed officers who show up want to pull me aside and ask me, do I believe that something happened, which I've certainly been asked to do before. Or if I've known somebody for several years, as I said, and I'm getting a similar kind of question. Also, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that that's only happened a handful of times. 
but I would respectfully, gently remind the person that I'm talking with that that's not my job. And that even if it was my job, it's not necessarily information that's appropriate for for me to be asked or to be sharing. I'm never in a position to be surmising whether or not something is really happening here. I, I, I come from a place of if I'm sitting with somebody and they're telling me that something is so, then I believe it's so. You know, I think that there's so much stigma and feelings like shame and guilt and fear of not being believed that so many survivors experience that as a primary reason why they are not talking about their experiences. I always err on the side of believing uh, survivors when I'm working with them because I know that there's relatively low risk in believing just because I hear some wild things does not mean that they're not true in exactly the way that survivors say that they are happening or have happened to them. On the other side, there's a huge risk in not believing what somebody says and what that might do to somebody's ego or their self-esteem or whether or not they decide to pursue criminal justice or higher education or disclosing to somebody else in their lives. And I take that really seriously. I also have the luxury of I'm not law enforcement. I'm not the DA's office. I don't have anything to prove to anyone. And, you know, in my years of training forensic examiners and volunteer advocates who are responding to acute cases in the emergency room, I think that's a really important thing to remind them of, to know what our roles are, but also what they're not. And, you know, sometimes that's difficult to, I've always loved being part of a multidisciplinary team, but it's challenging, right? Because we're all coming at this from, from pretty different angles. Sometimes we want the same thing and sometimes we don't want the same thing, but it's made for an interesting career. You also have a consulting role for the Joyful Heart Foundation, you said. Is that right? Am I, I, I have. Am I characterizing that yes, correctly? I have at times, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Joyful Heart, founded by Mariska Hargitay, actor, director, producer of Law & Order SVU, one of my favorite shows. Advocate. Yes, of course. Philanthropist. (laughs) Yes, on and on. And so I just saw the episode last week where the police officers in the show were asked to be witnesses for a prosecution of a survivor who killed her, allegedly killed her husband. Actually, she didn't allegedly, she confessed. And there was a debate amongst all of the police officers, including Mariska's character, the lieutenant, Olivia Benson, about whether or not she should go to jail Mm -hmm. because she was a victim of coercive control. Now, she never, nobody ever uttered those words, but it was clear that that's what they were saying, that that was what the episode was about because there was never any physical abuse. Mm -hmm. And so the police officer that was basically against sort of protecting her from going to jail was upset because this woman's husband was a police officer. And she felt that, you know, they should protect him and and that he never did anything physical. So therefore, there was no abuse. But Olivia Benson's character basically was putting forth the idea that this man came home, this police officer husband came home every day. And the first thing he did is take his gun out of his holster and put it on the table. And it was always visible to the wife at any point. And mm-hmm. it was always a, a threat. And mm-hmm. basically, after years of, of fear and intimidation she, whatever happened, snapped. What was interesting to me about that episode is that it explored that there's a difference even amongst law enforcement about what the definition of abuse was. Mm-hmm. So we weren't talking about what's legal, but even from an ethical perspective. Right. And that was really disturbing to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I know this in reality, it's true, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Like if we can't even agree on what is abuse? You know, what are the impacts of abuse on someone's psyche and freedom in this case? Mm-hmm. How can we actually be effective in preventing it and identifying it and confronting it? I started that episode of SVU last week, but I got a, a couple of minutes in and decided, oh, I'm going to watch something else tonight, um, which is always part of my... Sorry to... No, 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 that's, that's okay, but... I, spoilers. It's the push and pull of my own self-care is that I am totally the person who would sign up for Law & Order SVU Marathon really at any time. 
But also there are times that I, that the other part of my brain knows that it's, it's a day to sit down and watch that kind of marathon, or also it's a day not to sit down and watch that kind of marathon. It's taken me a long time to figure out which kind of day is which, but last week happened to be a, a night where I said, oh, I'm, I'm not going to watch this whole episode tonight, but I did watch the first few minutes. I think, you know, in my experience on the advocacy service provider side of, of things, the anti-violence field, there is a lot of camaraderie and a lot of agreement, I think, on our definitions of things. You know, there's some, some nuanced things here and there, but for the most part, I've always felt an alignment with my colleagues. And I've definitely experienced that from other disciplines, other members of the multidisciplinary team also, where sometimes we're speaking the same language, we're using the same definitions, and other times we're not. I think that, again, you know, part of the skill of this kind of work and on these kinds of teams in, in this city, I've always found, and it took me a long time to figure this out, I think, for myself, but what's a teachable moment and what's not being in tune with your audience and who might be receptive to this teachable moment and who might not be and always coming from a place of respect and being able to speak to somebody respectfully and also being able to to listen respectfully to anybody who knows me could attest to this that I am an advocate through and through which which definitely means that I have a feisty spirit to me sometimes which I think works really well for me and has for many many years in certain situations and over the years I've come to learn about myself how and when that feist needs to be tempered not because I'm looking to blow out my own candle. I'm certainly not. But because I think that, you know, sometimes people respond better to a whisper than they do to a shout. And I think that just, in my experience, there are times to stand up and argue and fight. And then there are other times where it's time to stand up and not argue and fight, but present your your side of things in a calm, rational, respectful way, because that's how the person, that's how the audience is going to hear it the most. And then also to know who are your allies and who are not your allies. Because yes, I agree with you. There exists, unfortunately, a lot of variety in how people define and how people understand and if or how people believe experiences of victimization. I like to cozy up to that and not pretend that it's not there, but think of creative ways to invite people in and how can I share my expertise with people? How can I educate people, communities, teams, what have you, departments about what I know to be true about victimization when they don't want to hear it, right? When they're, when they're not believing of it. What are some of the reasons why they may not want to hear it? if you have information that will help them do their job better? Well, so, you know, I think in lots of different settings, time is a factor, right? So I've done a lot of lecturing over the years to medical professionals, for example, and I encourage them to be screening and assessing for current victimization, history of victimization. And a lot of it for a lot of people comes down to, I don't have the time to ask that kind of question, which I disagree strongly with, but I think cozying up to that for them and let's talk more about that, often morphs into a conversation of, well, I don't know how I might answer or respond to somebody who discloses to me. And I don't have time to open up a conversation. And if I don't have time to open up and thoroughly have a conversation with someone, isn't that doing more harm than good? I've had countless medical professionals say something similar like that to me. And I think that that really taps into and speaks to their concerns, right? Because I think a lot, of, a lot of these things are miscommunications around people who have the best of intentions, but that it gets jumbled along the way because of time constraints, because of lack of information, because they don't necessarily have the appropriate resources, because it brings up their own stuff that, you know, they, they are not asking because it's triggering for them. And none of these are excuses not to properly screen people, for example, in, in a physician's office. But I think as an advocate, as an educator around these kinds of things, there are ways 
to tap into how you could not only be providing a service to dot, 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 the patient, the survivor who you really want to be benefiting from this, but also to the provider, to the district attorney's office, to the law enforcement detective who really has have their own concerns about talking about these kinds of things. So what are some of the risks when people aren't either properly assessing for domestic violence in these settings and and also to the funders of these programs when they're not properly aligning the incentives to the activities? What are some of the risks to the individuals that are being served and to society at large? Well, I think that there are a lot of missed opportunities when it comes to not properly assessing for current victimization or history of victimization. One of which that that's ringing in my ears is are the healthcare costs associated with intimate partner violence, as an example. You know, these are of epidemic proportions, and yet I think we're not necessarily as a society collectively talking about domestic violence in that way. But, you know, over the years of working in large medical institutions, if your patient who, let's say, is just had whatever surgery they had, elective procedure, let's say, but they don't have the kind of home environment where they can properly care for themselves after surgery. So they need to come back. They need to come in through the emergency room. They develop this infection. They're not compliant with this medication and how it snowballs from there. And and again, I'm purposely talking about an elective procedure here, right? That's not to mention all of the different kinds of diagnoses, medical diagnoses I'm talking about for the moment, but mental health diagnoses is its own other ball of wax. But, you know, not properly screening and assessing for um, somebody's support system at home, how safe somebody is at home emotionally, financially, physically, medically, sexually. We're not necessarily setting that patient up to have a successful recovery or as successful of a recovery as possible if we don't entirely have the lay of their land at home. And, you know, I, I know firsthand that there are many, many providers that do screen for sexual assault, domestic violence, or family violence, let's say, in their patients, but there are many, many, many others who are not. And lots of people don't really have what I consider to be a very good reason for omitting those kinds of questions. But then again, you know, even if a provider, let's say, is asking those questions, how are they asking them? Are you making eye contact with the patient? Are you sitting down with the patient? Are you rushing through that question to check the box like you know, like the other boxes that you have to check, like, you know, do you brush your teeth twice a day? You know, and so one hurdle is, are you asking the questions? The other hurdle is how, right? Are you asking them in a trauma-informed way? And I think oftentimes the answer is no, but it's half the battle. Well, we've come to the point of the conversation where I've adapted the Inside Their Actor Studios set of questions to engendered. First question From a systemic level, what is at stake in ending gender-based violence? Well, I think certainly there's an opportunity to gain different kinds of insights, different kinds of equality, different rates of victimization, certainly. I think certain pockets of society would be terrified at what we stand to lose, what they stand to lose in terms of power, in terms of authority, in terms of decision-making, which is... I think, addictive for a lot of people without without them even knowing it. You know, I think certainly, I don't know, it's such an interesting, I'm running through all of the different people and spaces and groups and, you know, departments and professionals and what something like that might mean to them. And I think the answers might be very surprising across the board, you know, but uh, I love what I do and I hope that one day there's no need for me and that I'll be out of business, which is a double-edged sword, right? Because this is not only what I love to do, but it's my livelihood as well. But I'm hopeful that there will be a time when my services aren't needed. And at the same time, I'm not sure when that will be. That brings me to my second question of what gives you hope? So much gives me hope. One of the things that I love the most about my work, I think what's able to, what's made it possible for me to sustain anti-violence work for so many years is the resiliency that I see in the people that I work with, that, you know, healing from trauma and abusive experiences is absolutely possible. 
I see it happen all the time in lots of different ways. And there's no prescribed way to heal, right? So to see one person's healing versus another person's healing can be widely different, but equally as satisfying for that person and also for me to to experience alongside them, to watch. I think that we have, as I said, you know, for all of the pitfalls and roadblocks that we may encounter in the anti-violence field, there really are a lot of wonderful people doing this work, this very difficult work. They give me a lot of hope. I have a lot of wonderful colleagues and mentors, and it's inspirational to see people who are brave enough to step forward and to acknowledge their victimization if they want to acknowledge their victimization when they want to do that and to be brought into somebody's trajectory, you know, their their healing trajectory along the way and to watch it unfold for them is really such a wonderful, unique opportunity. And I'm so grateful to the people who have brought me in in those ways and shared their stories with me. And our last question What can we do more of, less of, start or stop as a society? I think believing what people have to say is a powerful intervention in and of itself that should not be minimized. So, you know, I'm I'm a professional, but, you know, I encounter lots of people who are receiving disclosures in unprofessional set in non-professional settings rather. A friend is disclosing to me or I'm seeing something take place or I have a hunch about that. And, you know, largely people are not leaning towards believing people, but rather moving away from, oh, that doesn't sound possible. Or if it was that bad, fill in the blank. Or I know this person, they're not capable of that. And that can really be so damaging to a survivor. You don't even have to be somebody who's being disclosed to. It can really be about how we carry ourselves and what we make jokes about and what we talk about, how we talk about things. But I think erring on the side of believing the numbers, which only really speak to the tip of the iceberg in terms of how pervasive gender-based violence really is in our society and in all parts of our society. It's not happening in certain places, in certain states, on certain blocks. It's happening everywhere. And the more we as a society are willing to face and acknowledge that truth, I think the more the more likely people are to feel safe to talk about their experiences. And again, you know, violence thrives in silence. And, you know, I'm not a person to be quiet about lots of things, but <laughs> this is, this falls pretty high on my list. So I think, you know, I'm the kind of person who leans into this kind of, this kind of thing. And I think it's really important to know that survivors are not alone. Thank you so much, Julia. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Same here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. 